Thanks, Chris. So, yeah, all part of our kind of discernment process to try and draw the church into our conversations as we try to listen to the Lord for some of the things he's putting on our hearts for the years ahead. Um, that'll tie in well to our advanced theme, which we're continuing this morning. Um, it's been a great uh, start to September. And as I said last week, the kind of summary of last week was, and, and I guess how we're framing this first um, this year as we go into 20. September 2021, is not what the year it is? <laughs> um, anyway, um, it feels a bit like the cloud has shifted, I guess, is the analogy we give of the, of the wilderness. The, the cloud has moved. We look out of our tents and we see it, it feels like the cloud's moving. We want to follow God and we want to encamp around his presence. We might not be completely sure of where we're going, but we feel like the Holy Spirit is at the same time leading us to be on the front foot, to move forward, to have a posture of advance. And therefore, we want to open up our hearts to him. We do believe that we are living in a kakarios moment, a, a specific and unique moment in history. And when these moments in histories come, we believe that it's an opportunity for the church to step up and to step into that place. And um, when <clears throat> everything else seems like it's failing around us, we have an opportunity to lean in and see the Lord really, really move. Chris said, on Wednesday night at Corporate Prayer, if you were there, reminded us how the world has basically exhausted itself. It doesn't have the solutions to fix itself anymore. And while that can seem quite, quite doom and gloom and depressing in many ways, the reality is it does lead us into miracle territory. It leads us into territory where only if God moves will we see something turned around. And that's where, as the people of God, we're called to pray, to seek, and to, to seek God, to pray in the kingdom. And, um, and the words of uh, Leonard Ravenhill really ring true for me here. Um, I was thinking about it this week. Somebody said it, and it just left him a spurt. The opportunity of a lifetime needs to be seized during the lifetime of opportunity, right? The opportunity of a lifetime needs to be seized during the lifetime of an opportunity. And I think we are living in the lifetime of an opportunity. And I don't <clears throat> mean this just to sound like the pastor dangling the carrot. I actually do believe you could miss this opportunity. This, this opportunity has a specific lifetime. And if we don't seize it, you can bet your bottom dollar the enemy will. Okay, and he's already trying to do that. And it's our, it's our moment, I really believe this, as the church right across the world, particularly in the Western world, and for us here in our patch in Ireland, there is an opportunity that lies in front of us. And so, as we said, our short-term vision is to really put a process in place of which the catalyst events are one element of, to listen to God and to listen to the brokenness of our community so that we might receive fresh dreams and visions about the longer-term vision that the Lord wants to give to us. Remember, Joseph got a dream for seven years to turn nations around in very practical ways. And we want to listen to the Lord for that as well. And so over the next number of weeks, we're going to be teaching you, uh, as I move on to this morning, on the theme of the kingdom of God. That's what we're going to focus on on Sundays, both in Lurgan and in Portadown. Because we really believe as we seek to listen to God for fresh dreams, for what he wants to do and how he wants to use us at this moment of opportunity, we want to make sure that our vision for that lines up with the scriptures and particularly lines up with the teachings of Jesus. Because if you haven't worked out by now, there's lots of divergent and I would argue distorted versions of the kingdom all around the world at the moment and within Christianity itself, right? And, uh, and, and we need to get a thorough, mature understanding of the theme that was Jesus' favorite theme on the earth when he spoke of the kingdom of God. We want to make sure that our vision of that sits within Jesus' vision of that because there's lots of twisted versions of that. And it's important, we believe, as a church leadership that we teach 
as best we can, a biblically faithful understanding of the kingdom. Jesus ultimately wants us to be kingdom people. That's how we should be defined. We should be defined as kingdom people. We are the kingdom family. And, um, and Jesus told us to pray very simply that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to be about the kingdom. He wants to live for it. He wants us to seek it. He wants us to pray for it. That's why he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given on to you as well. But the thing about it is, we all know this verse, those of us who have been brought up in the church anyway would have heard this. We'd have all sung, seek ye first the king. We've all done that, you know. Um, we'll, we'll all have sung those songs. But what really does the kingdom mean? It would be really interesting. I wish we had time to do it. It would be really interesting if I just said that question, what is the kingdom of God, just to hear what, how many people are sitting in front of me, all the different individual answers would say. What really is the kingdom of God? What would you say? If you were like asked that question, what is the kingdom of God? You, you see, I think we in the church um, have an underdeveloped understanding of the kingdom of God. And often what happens is we think it's some kind of vague description of how we should probably put God first in our life, go to church, read our Bibles, say the odd prayer and be good Christian people. And uh, that might be a bit of it. But it's so, it's so much more than that. And so what we want to do is dive deep into the teachings of Jesus because he talked about it all the time. And as we go through the next number of weeks, we're going to eventually, in two or three weeks' time, focus most of the rest of the autumn on Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus gives multiple examples and parables of what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like this, a sower who went out to sow seed. Or the kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. We're going to take each of those parables in the next number of weeks. But before we get there this morning, what I want to try and do is present your vision at a broad sort of sweeping whole Bible level of why the kingdom is so important. So I have about 20 minutes or 25 minutes here to try and get you through the whole Bible, okay? So <clears throat> I'm going to probably move quite quick. Okay, and there's going to be lots of kind of scriptures coming up, so please don't let that um, put you off. Just kind of come with me on a quick journey through the Bible, okay, to basically help you understand that when we, when we read the Bible, you see, it's not just like an appendix for life. It's not just um, the thing that we nitpick the odd verse off that might apply to one of our situations. We, we can do it like that, but that's like that's like Sunday school, childlike level. God wants us to mature in order that we might immerse ourselves in the whole story of God. That doesn't mean you have to know it off by heart. It just means that you get an understanding of the worldview that the Bible gives. The Bible is a meaning-making story. Okay, It makes meaning of your life. It makes meaning of the world around us. It doesn't mean we have all the answers, but it sure does give you a better framework and worldview to approach life than most of the other worldviews that are out there today that are deeply flawed even though they have an aversion of giving you the good life. They don't, right? But the Bible gives us a story that makes meaning of our lives, and we will find our own story much more uh, uh, accurately and authentically when we look at the story of God. So here's a quick run-through. We're in Eden to start with, okay? By the, in 25 minutes, we're going to be in glory in the new heavens and the new earth, all right? But we're in Eden just for a few moments here. At the beginning of the Bible, okay? So I'm going to be, a, hopefully, hopefully I'll be in a bit of a role here and you can come with me, right? In the beginning, in Eden, we are presented with a vision of God's rule and reign on the earth. And that's essentially what the kingdom is. 
It's a vision in Eden of the loving reign and rule of God expressed on the earth. It was a place where humanity flourished, where it was a picture of shalom, of peace and flourishing, where man and God walked, and woman walked in intimate communion with God. Eden was a physical place symbolizing the marriage of heaven and earth, right? Now, this is important language, okay? Eden was the place where heaven and earth was married in perfect union. And God wanted Eden to be extended throughout the earth. Now, I don't know what exactly the rest of the earth looked like, but Eden must have been distinct. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an Eden, right? So Eden was distinct, and God essentially wanted Adam and Eve to extend that throughout the earth. Now, let me try and prove that. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Then the Lord made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees which were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. A, wa a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. Now, these are big names, but the name of the first is the Pishon, the winds through the entire land of that place where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, da-da-da. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris. Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher, and the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. Why, why I'm mentioning this verse is it was a physical space with physical boundaries, with actual places named on this. And so Eden had borders, or Eden had boundaries, right? And so basically what God wanted Adam and Eve to do when he said, be fruitful and multiply, was he wanted them to extend the borders of Eden throughout the whole earth because he wanted to fill it all with his presence, which is why God's really passionate about the environment, because he wanted us to steward what was in Eden throughout the whole earth. This is what the authors of Genesis really want us to know through his image bearers, okay? And it's really, really important that we get a grasp of that before we proceed, okay? That was what we see in Eden. Let me just see my pages are out of sync here, right? Otherwise, that would have been a nightmare. Okay, this is Greg Bale. Adam's purpose in the first garden temple was to expand its boundaries until it circumscribed, circumscribed the whole earth so that the earth would be completely filled with the glorious, God's glorious presence. Right? That, that was the mandate upon humanity. Now, sin, right? that three-letter word, completely, <clears throat> completely derailed that plan. When Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, essentially what they were doing was saying, we, we would rather have our rule and reign than we would God's. Or at least they were deceived in such a way to think that that might be a good thing to explore. And so they bit of the forbidden fruit, and when they did, the poison of sin entered the world. And in short, what we find with sin is it becomes a way of building our own kingdom. And what we find in the Bible is when you try to do that, it just doesn't go well. And so the first kind of 11 chapters of Genesis show us that it gets to the flood where the whole world is wicked and God is so grieved that he has to basically start again. And then when we get to the Tower of Babel and they're like, well, let's build our own thing. It never goes well. It never goes well when you try to build your own kingdom. It can feel good at the start, but it never ends up well for you or for the people that surround you. And so God will not let his dream for the world be deterred. And so we come to this guy called Abram, and he has nothing really to offer God other than an available heart. He's old. He doesn't have any kids. He can't really reproduce anything at that particular age. And yet God shows up to him and says that through him, the whole world is going to be blessed. 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Here it is. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God wants all peoples of, of the whole earth to be blessed. He wants what he originally wanted, to fill the whole world with his loving presence. And God is reformulating his plan now through a specific man and through his descendants so that through his descendants, the children of Israel, eventually they will reach the whole world. And the rest of the Old Testament, that's just Genesis 12, is basically the unfolding of that plan, as we will see. And the plan is for God's original dream for heaven and earth to be married to come into place. So I'm going to just touch on a couple more of those in the Old Testament to show you this, and then we'll get into Jesus, all right? Jacob was one of those descendants. Jacob is a bit of a crook. He's a bit of a deceiver. It kind of gives us all hope. He's a serious work in progress, but he is still the God's chosen person to channel the blessing of his father, Abraham. And he steals something from his brother. He deceives his dad. He's on the run. And while he's on the run, he has a dream when he, when, he, when he falls down to sleep one night. And this is what it says. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put it there, put it under his head, lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw, listen, look, a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and I will give your descendants the land in which you are lying. And so it goes on. And the last verse says, All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So Jacob lies down for his sleep. He's one of Abraham's descendants. He has a dream, and the dream is a ladder. What is the ladder doing? It's connecting heaven and earth. And on the ladder is divine agents, angels going up and down. Why? Because God always wants his loving rule and reign to be on the earth. And he wants a people who will embody that. And so Jacob needs to know, despite the fact that he's got the blessing because he's tricked people, that he's going to have to become one who has wrestled literally into a place where he is going to carry the dream of God, which is not for just a bunch of nice people on the earth, but for the actual rule and reign of God, the loving rule and reign of God to come on the earth. Heaven and earth overlapping. Jacob, as if you know the story, has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel after he wrestled with God. And 400 years later, they find themselves in Egypt under the tyrannical rule of a man called Pharaoh. <clears throat> They're slaves. On the surface, it looks like this promise that God gave to Abram 400 years before is now dead, ditto, gone, flatlined, right? But yet God doesn't forget his promises, and so he chooses this man called Moses, and he meets Moses on the burning bush, and 400 years later, with millions now of these Israelites in Israel, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down. I love that, right? God comes down because God's always wanted to come down. <laughs> he, he's never wanted to be just a God. He's up there in heaven shouting down, going, here, how you doing? Any chance of a wee chat sometime? Or he does, he's not, not who he is. He wants to have intimate communion with us, and so he comes down 
to the people of Israel through Moses in their slavery. And interesting, who does he come down to? The least. Slaves. The very lowest of the social ladder. The ones who have been oppressed. That's who he wants to come down to. And to prove that he wants to come down even more, he tells Moses he wants to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is going to be this place where God dwells. Because he, he still wants this dream. And actually, the holy of holies within the tabernacle was made, even the art around it, if you really want to get into that, which is an amazing study, it all is a reflection of Eden. It's like a mini Eden because God still wants what he originally wanted to be stewarded well. So if the Israelites can do this well, then all the world will one day know what God has always wanted them to know. And unfortunately, what we find is the rest of the Old Testament is literally, in most ways, the story of how Israel doesn't do this how they mostly get it wrong, how they mostly fail in living up to this vocation. God gets upset because they want a king now of their own. And God says, no, you don't really want a king of your own. And if you do have one, this is what's going to happen. And bar a few bright spots like King David and King Hezekiah and Josiah, bar a few bright spots, they serve their own kingdoms. They don't serve the kingdom of God. And so when you read the prophets, sometimes the prophets can feel like hard work when you're reading them, aren't you? But that's because they're lamenting the dream of God. They're feeling the dream of God broken for the world. They're speaking to Israel to say, you haven't lived up to this vocation. And so when we read through these, we, we sometimes are like, holy smoke, this isn't a great start to the day of reading some part of Jeremiah that feels like doom and gloom, doesn't it? But they, they're, bringing, they're bringing the heart of God that's broken and what God's going to have to do because of what has happened on the earth. And yet, in the midst of all of that, they have these glimpses of hope that maybe God will not forget his dream. And so you have people like Isaiah coming in with, forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Maybe this thing isn't dead altogether. Maybe even though we fail so many times to try and live it up to what God has called us to do, maybe still a new thing could happen. And this is what Isaiah and some of the other prophets come proclaiming. It's a new thing, but it's connected to an old promise. The old promise that God gave to Abram that he wants to fill it all with his presence. And Isaiah reminds the people that this is exactly what God's to do. He says this, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. In other words, the children of Israel got so connected to the temple as being their thing, a building. God's like, you know, where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being. God's a bit like, yeah, you want to build a temple. But listen, heaven is my throne. So the picture is of God sitting up on his throne in heaven, his feet going right down to the ground, touching the earth because the earth is his footstool. Do you, do you see this, the connection to the ladder in, 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 in Jacob's kind of dream? That God wants heaven touching earth, heaven overlapping and interlocking with earth, heaven and earth becoming one. And yet, as I've said, the Old Testament, despite some bright spots, is pretty much telling us the story of the dream of God that seems to have died. And so at the end of the Old Testament, you have 400 years of silence, and it feels like the promise of God is hanging by the thread. But then the spirit starts to move over the womb of a teenage girl. It's utterly remarkable. And she, like her father Abraham, had an available heart. She said, be it unto me according to your world. All God wants is your yes. And as she opens up her heart to God, 
the Spirit of the God plants an embryo in our heart that is going to carry the seed of promise to all mankind. And this is where we get to Jesus because Jesus comes as the ultimate Israelite. He comes within this story. This is why the story is so important. He comes within the trajectory of the story to date, but he comes saying, I am the ultimate Israelite. Where Israel as a nation has failed, I have come to fulfill that. I have come to fulfill this original promise. He's come to uh, in flesh and blood, God in a man, uh, fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling all these promises of the story right through the whole of the Bible. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the better Moses. He is the better King David. And he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, why is he proclaiming the kingdom of God? Because he's carrying the dream of the Trinity from eternity past that one day heaven and earth would be completely interconnected, overlapping, interlocking, one. And Jesus comes saying, the kingdom of God is now at hand. It is actually available, a whole new availability to this kingdom that God has always wanted to come on the earth is now coming. Why? Because the king has come and he is now present and on the earth. It is present and it is available. And he actually draws on the story that I've just described to try and help the Israelites understand that now something's happening. So in John chapter 1, Jesus meets Philip, and he's kind of recruiting his disciples, and Philip is one of these disciples. And Philip goes to get Nathaniel, who's another one of the disciples. Now listen to this interaction to see if you can make the connection with what I've just described. We have found, Philip found Nathaniel, and he told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here's truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. So Nathaniel was obviously under a fig tree earlier on that day. And now he's like, holy smoke, how did you actually know that, right? So he is like freaked out because somebody's actually saw where he was earlier on that day. And then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that, he added. He, sorry, he then added, this is it, very truly I tell you, you will see what? Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he referring to? He's referring to Jacob's dream. Every Jew would have known Jacob had a dream and in that dream, angels were ascending back and forth on this ladder and Jesus has now come to say that now you're going to see this actually happening. Heaven is going to invade earth. They're going to overlap and interlock. If you have eyes to see, now you can see the kingdom. And Jesus came talking about the kingdom of God a lot. And he came saying, the kingdom of God is amongst you. It's here. It's accessible. You can reach out and touch it. Not in some intellectual kind of ethereal kind of way. Actually, a human person who has become like us can be touched and seen and heard. And the atmosphere that he's carrying in his life is the atmosphere of God's loving reign and rule. And it's unleashing heaven in all sorts of directions, in all kinds of ways to bring the rule and reign of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. And he was saying a whole new radical availability had come. He was saying, I have come 
to set up God's kingdom on the earth again. And so the reason I wanted to do this this morning and teach this to you just on this first Sunday of this particular topic we're diving into is I'm trying to help you that the kingdom, it wasn't that the kingdom hadn't existed before Jesus. It had. It's just that the people of God had done such a poor job at demonstrating it that nobody really knew what it looked like. And so you had the Pharisees with their version of it. You had the Sadducees with their version of it. You had the Zealots with their version of it. You had the Essenes with their versions of it. Does that sound familiar today? Does that sound familiar? Like, you know, you have, you know, one church's version of it. You have, you know, you know Facebook warrior Christians version of the kingdom. You have, you have all of these different kind of versions of the kingdom. And we just need to get back to the words and the teachings of Jesus. Because there we find who the kingdom is and what the kingdom looks like. And effectively, Jesus came within that story and within that tradition to say, this is what it looks like. And I am coming to set up the rule and reign of God that for too many years has been, has been almost defeated by the other kingdom that's alive in the world, which is the kingdom of darkness. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to set up my kingdom. And so after Jesus is baptized and he goes into the wilderness, he comes back from the wilderness and he stands up and he literally gives in the temple his inauguration speech. Now, I don't know if any of you have watched over the years when presidents of America or our own pre or whatever, when prime ministers are elected, they give what's called their inauguration speech. Thousands of people come, they listen to what the manifesto of that particular government is going to be in their particular time in office, right? And whether you like that or not, that's what they're doing. And Jesus comes back from the wilderness. He goes to the temple and he picks up the scroll, which just happens to be the scroll of Isaiah 61. I'm going to skip that. And he stands up and he reads within the tradition, within the story. So he picks up the scroll of the Old Testament and he reads this particular manifesto for what his kingdom was going to look like. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down in the eyes of everyone in the synagogue, were fastened on him. Talk about a holy pause. Talk about a holy hush as this Nazarene son of a carpenter gets up and reads the scroll and everybody knows that heaven and elect the, the, the kind of heavenly the electricity of heaven has just charged the whole room because the king has read the manifesto of the kingdom and everyone is like whoa and then unfortunately a lot of them go he's just a carpenter's son but Jesus was saying make no mistakes about it I am the kingdom I am the kingdom, and in him we're seeing the exact represent, representation of who God is. When we see Jesus, we see what the kingdom looks like. So notice how he lived, how he loved, who he ate with, the way he did friendship, the way he wept at funerals, and yet the way he raised the dead, and the way he raised the sick. If you want to see what the kingdom looks like, look at Jesus. That is the loving rule and reign of God. And when the cross, when we look at the cross and the resurrection, the culmination of Jesus' life, we see the fullness of what the kingdom really looks like. We see the glory of God. The glory of God is the goodness of God. And that's why it's called Good Friday, even though it's brutal. 
but it's good because we see the goodness of God, a God who would rather, who would give up his own life to rescue the ones that he made in his image so that through them his dream for the world would still come to pass. And it's also the place where Jesus dealt with death and sin and darkness. It's also the place where Jesus drained evil of its power. Where Jesus did something about wickedness and evil and sin and he drained it of its power. That's why on the cross he could say, it is finished. And when he rose from the dead, he was unleashing the power of this God, the power of this kingdom in and through the earth. And so um, I love this line of N.T. writes, the resurrection completed the inauguration of God's kingdom. So if in Luke chapter 4, at the start of his ministry, he, he, he got up and he read out the manifesto, the resurrection was the completion of that victory. It was the completion of the inauguration of God's kingdom so that it has begun. It's, it's moving. It's going. It's alive. The movement of the Spirit is now working. And so the church picks